Who is Dr. Eric Klein? Wait, first of all, who has been to all programs so far? Awesome. So if you raise your hand, please stay here afterwards. You're going to all be in a picture with the professor for, um, for the internet. Okay. Uh, Dr. Eric, I don't know if he, well, I said professor, but it's really a doctor. Okay, he's like a podiatrist. Dr. Eric Klein, <laughs> he's an archaeological podiatrist. Dr. Eric Klein, sorry, Dr. Eric H. Klein is professor of classics and anthropology and a former chair of the Department of Classical and Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations and current director of the George Washington University Capital Archaeological Institute. He's a National Geographic explorer. Aren't we all, though? Is that like a, an official term of art? Oh, I see. Okay, fine. He's an official National Geographic Explorer, a Fulbright Scholar, an NEH Public Scholar, an award-winning teacher and author. My daughter Clara came to the lunch today. She's 14. Now, if she has any questions about Greek, Greece or Rome or the Trojan War, I gave her his email, and he said he would answer it. So if you have any kids or grandkids studying this stuff, I'll give you out the phone number. You can call him any time of day. He will answer the question. If... If your kid thinks they got the question right on the test, the teacher is insisting they're wrong, you will check it and make sure, right? Okay, just scan in the test question. I'll give you the address. An archaeologist and ancient historian by training, Dr. Klein's primary fields of study are biblical archaeology, the military history of the Mediterranean world from antiquity to the present, and the international connections between Greece, Egypt, and the Near East during the Late Bronze Age. We learned about the Late Bronze Age last night. Um, Dr. Klein is currently co-director of the renewed series of archaeological excavations at the site of Tel Kabri, also located in Israel, apparently near Ashkelon. The project, which began in 2005, is run by the University of Haifa and the George Washington University. He was also a member of the Megiddo Expedition in Israel, excavating at biblical Armageddon for 10 seasons over, over a 20-year period from 1994 to 2014. Basically, he teaches kids, he goes, puts on his Indiana Jones outfits, or whatever he puts on, he digs, he cleans himself off, he came here to speak, and he goes back to teach. When do you start teaching again? Monday. Start teaching on Monday. With that, Dr. Eric Klein will teach us about Armageddon. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can all hear me? Okay, I feel like we're family now. I recognize everybody in the room, so. And especially Norma, it's great to see you again. I've known you since I was... Don't tell how long. No, 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 no. You were a little boy and I was already grown up. <laughs> we were inhabiting Megiddo together. <laughs> yeah, so in fact, I think we came, I came down and lectured for you in 1992, something like that. No, 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 years. years. <laughs> BCE. <laughs> anyway, it's wonderful to, to talk to you tonight. Do we want to put the lights down a little sure, bit? No, we're good? Okay. As long, long as you can see. We don't. Okay. No, we're, we're all right. Right, right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> that means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope that you will enjoy tonight's lecture. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I was at Megiddo since the beginning. 1994 was the first official big season. <clears throat> and I was there until 
2014 when I stepped away because of other commitments, but I had worked my way up from a volunteer all the way up to co-director with Israel Finkelstein. Uh, I knew it wasn't gonna go well when I first got there. I thought I'd already had like 15 seasons at other sites in Greece and Cyprus. And, uh, but I came to Megiddo as an unknown, and I had been told by one person that I would be a site supervisor, and I get there the first day, and David Yushkishkin looks at me and says, I don't know you. And I thought, this is a problem. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, I'm Eric, and I'll dig wherever you want me to. And so I did, and within a couple of years, up and up and up and up and up. So I have been, I was digging at Megiddo for longer than my children have been alive. So, in fact, Hannah came when she was 18 months old. So, as you can see, this is near and dear to my heart. I'm also right now writing a book on Megiddo. Uh, it's called Digging Up Armageddon. And in fact, on Wednesday, I'll be heading back to Chicago to the archives of the Oriental Institute to do more research on what the Chicago guys did back in the 20s and 30s. So um, it'll be another couple of years, but look for a book on Megiddo, which is both on the archeology span and on the archeologists. So how many people have read Michener's book, The Source? Okay. This, I've been billing it as the factual version of it, because I also want to alternate between the digging and the diggers. So we'll see. So far I've got most of the diggers going, but we'll see. So another couple of years. Anyway, so what you're gonna hear is part of that, but I also wanted to concentrate on the actual archeology, span what we have been finding there 20 years and three reports later. The whole idea with digging at Megiddo is that we dig every other summer, every even-numbered summer. And so in the interim, we're able to publish. Because this is one of the major problems in archaeology is that it's a lot of fun to dig. It's not so much fun to publish. So all the digs get behind. And so what Israel Finkelstein and the others did was to say, we're only going to dig every other year so we can publish. And so in fact, every four years or so, we've had volumes that have come out. So we have Megiddo 3, Megiddo 4, Megiddo 5, and Megiddo 6 is now in press. So that will be out soon. So let me tell you some of the things that we found, but also to place you in case you haven't been there. How many people have actually been to Megiddo before? Okay, so a lot of people when you go there on your trip will be returning there. So here's Megiddo right up here. It's actually quite close to Janine and the West Bank. Back in the early 90s, we actually had workmen that came from Janine, and I used to go to dinner at their houses, uh, and uh, not so much anymore. But back then, in the early 90s, it was, it was okay. Of course, Megiddo is Armageddon. Uh, many people don't realize that Armageddon is a real place, but it is. The name, uh, near as we can tell, actually comes from Har Megiddo, the mound or the mountain of Megiddo in Hebrew. And in fact, Armageddon originally was spelled with an H and was pronounced as Harmageddon. Uh, if you look in the earliest versions of the New Testament, it actually has a little kind of an apostrophe, which is an aspirant, so you speak it with an H. Over time, somebody forgot to copy the aspirant, and so Armageddon became Armageddon, and that's what we've got. So Megiddo is, in fact, Armageddon, and our T-shirt said that every dig season. It said, I survived Armageddon, and it had the year. So uh, I, I've survived Armageddon 10 times so far, and uh, we'll see how things go. At any rate, um, I've got a couple of publications out already. One is The Battles of Armageddon, 
which I wanted to write about all the battles that have been fought there, because in fact there have already been 34 that have been fought over the various years. And I had uh, timed it for 2000 with, remember Y2K and all that problem? So I thought, let me take advantage of that and I can, anyway, there were so many battles fought at Megiddo that I missed the Y2K deadline and um, I wasn't able to retire back then. So at any rate, this map shows all the various battles that have been fought at Megiddo over the last 4,000 years. And we have some evidence for a couple of those at the site of Megiddo itself. Tutmosis III, in fact, you can see him here on the left. He is ruling Egypt in about 1450 BC, is towards the end of his reign, uh, 1450 BCE, and he fights a battle at Megiddo, which he records on the wall of his temple down in Egypt. It's actually the world's first historical battle. It's not the first battle, of course, that's when two Neolithic guys threw rocks at each other, but this is the first one where the details are written down, and it's on a wall in a temple in Egypt. And he tells us that the capturing of Megiddo is like the capturing of a thousand cities. That was how important it was. And everybody else fought a battle there as well. You've got uh, here uh, Deborah and Barak fighting against Sisera and the Canaanites. We've got, um, uh, let's see, all the various biblical figures. Jonathan and Saul fight there. Uh, Gideon fights his famous um, uh, night battle nearby. Uh, we've got Josiah. We've got the Romans and the Greeks, Crusaders, Mongols. Napoleon came through. And then my favorite guy with the feathers, that's Edmund Allenby in World War I. Basically, everyone who has come through this region has fought a battle because Megiddo is at the crossroads. There it is right there, here it is right there. If you wanted to go in the ancient world from Turkey down to Egypt or from Egypt up to Mesopotamia, you had to go right by Megiddo because the Via Maris, the way of the sea, came right through Megiddo and the Jezreel Valley. So if you want to control the region, you have to control the Jezreel Valley. If you want to control the Jezreel Valley, you control Megiddo. It's as simple as that. And that is why T3, Tutmosis III, said the capturing of Megiddo was like the capturing of a thousand cities. So every invader that came through here fought a battle, except for Alexander the Great. He did not fight a battle because it simply gave in to him without a fight, just surrendered. But everybody else has fought here. So let me take you to Megiddo and go through some of the archaeology that we've been finding uh, and uh, let you in on a couple of the inner secrets. This is the mound as it looks today. This is an aerial shot. Part of the problem is, of course, you don't want to go too high with either your airplane or your drone because it gets shot down by the military. So that's a problem. You have to be under 300. I can't remember if it's meters or feet. I know there's a difference. And if I go the one, then it gets shot down. The other is fine. But in this mound, you can see that it's overlooking the Jezreel Valley. And in fact, the Jezreel Valley here is shaped like, the best way to describe it, it's like a triangle on its side. Tip of the triangle is over the Mediterranean by Haifa. The bottom of the triangle is over by the River Jordan. And that triangle going east-west goes pretty much the entire width of Israel, um, or nearly there. It's between 20 and 30 miles wide. But from north to south, it's between three and seven miles. It's that narrow. So Napoleon supposedly said 
that this was the most perfect battleground on the face of the earth. Now, I actually, in doing research for that book on the battles, I went through pretty much everything that Napoleon ever wrote. I could not find it, at least not in connection with Megiddo, though if you do a search on the internet for Megiddo and Napoleon, that will come up time and time and time again. I think he actually said it about Belgium, but, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever. So, but it is a great battlefield, and if you're standing up on top of Megiddo, you can actually hear the horse's hooves if you have a great imagination and imagine the people uh, fighting. Though actually one day I was like, look, look, you can hear, you can hear the horse. And somebody said, um, that's the aircraft taking off from the secret Air Force base that's just down the road from us. I'm like, it's not secret, I can see it there. They're like, yeah, it's not on any map though, which is true. So Ramat David, you will not find that on any map. But so this is still a militarily important area. Now, the mound itself, you're looking at the back of the mound here, which is uh, a little bit more shallow. The front of the mound is anywhere between 50 and 70 feet high above the Jezreel Valley. It shrunk a little bit because the archaeologists have taken off about 20 feet, and the surrounding Jezreel Valley has been filled in because it used to be swampy and full of uh, mosquitoes with malaria in the 1920s. So at one point, the Chicago excavators, every single one of them was down with malaria. And when um, a, a fairly well-known visitor came to, to visit them, they said, there wasn't anybody to show me around. Everybody was down in their beds, sick as a dog, and the workmen were digging by themselves, which, trust me, is not really the way you want to run an excavation. But uh, when they filled in the valley, they got rid of the malaria. And, but as a result, the mound is now quite, not quite as high as it used to be. Still, inside the mound, there are at least 20 cities, one on top of another. As each one was destroyed, they leveled it off and built the next one. Now, within those, there are subphases. So they're actually close to 30 cities, but some of them are, you know, Section A and Section B. So at least 20 major cities and 30 different phases. And this is what it looks like uh, from the top with all the various places here labeled, the early bronze temples, the stables, the water system, southern stables. So probably the most famous parts of the mound and those that you visited when you went to the site. One is the water tunnel, right? How many people went through the water tunnel? Right, okay, when this was excavated, Chicago excavated it in the 20s and the 30s, and they originally thought that it dated back to the late Bronze Age, the second millennium BCE. Later, Yadin and others said, no, 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 it's the time of Solomon or it's the Iron Age, even later. And so that's what we've always been taught. There is, it seems, some evidence, in fact, that it was built back in the Bronze Age by the Canaanites. Uh, and in fact, the new evidence coming out of Gezer is also now indicating that their water tunnel is Middle Bronze. So it may be the Canaanites were more active than we thought, and that Solomon and the Israelites basically inherited things that were already built. But this is actually an ongoing question even now. So if you went down into the tunnel then, you saw that what this is, it's a way to get to the water source without actually going outside. The tunnel is 100 feet straight down and then 300 feet straight out, give or take. And you can see here heading out to the water. And the way they dug it, well, if you've read Michener's The Source, you know how they did it. You had two teams, one coming from the water source and one coming from inside, and they met in the middle. That ridge may be where they met. And it's a very, very exciting place to be in. I saw it most recently on a TV documentary 
and those of you that heard me at lunch know what I think of the TV documentaries. And in fact, this one was kind of funny. It was, it was specifically on Megiddo, and my friend Norma Franklin, uh, who dug with us at Megiddo for years and years, and in fact is not only a PhD in archaeology, but a licensed tour guide, so she'll probably be the one that sh shows you Megiddo. She was in this documentary, and they were walking through holding flaming torches. And so I emailed her, I said, Norma, you know there's an electrical system in there, right? There's, there's, the whole thing is lit. She's like, yeah, they thought it wasn't as romantic, so they made me go through with torch. I'm like, TV people, oh my God, oh my God. All right, so you have the water tunnel, and then you have Solomon's stables. Never mind they might not be Solomon's, and they might not be stables. They're still Solomon's stables, right? Every tour guide will tell you this, and we'll come back to these. So, but Chicago first found these in the 20s and the 30s. And I will say, I do think that they are stables, but I don't think that they were uh, Solomon's, and, and we'll come back to this. So, the first guy that dug there, there's been four teams that have dug at Megiddo over the past century. And this is the first guy, or one of his colleagues, uh, it's Gottlieb Schumacher. It's either him or one of his other guys, we're not quite sure. We usually say it's him, but there's actually not 100%. But still, Schumacher, he is German, but born in Zanesville, Ohio. And he and his family moved to Haifa as part of the German Templar movement. They were awaiting the, the coming. Uh, and so he moved over to Haifa when he was about nine years old, studied uh, geology and archaeology, and then did the first excavations at Megiddo, 1903 to 1905. So he and his workmen, you can see some of them here in a photograph from that period, they are employing all the locals. He was the only archaeologist on site, but he had as many as 250 workmen under him at any one time. Needless to say, the record keeping was not great. He did publish the results a couple years after he finished, but then another guy, Carl Watzinger, it took him 20 more years to publish the small finds, all the artifacts that Schumacher found. So what Schumacher did was come along and dig a whacking great trench. This is what you see here, Schumacher's great trench, right through the middle of the mound. Right, now this is the way they did things in 1903. If you know um, Schliemann and Troy, it's the same thing he did to Troy in the 1870s, just dig a huge trench right through. So we can still see remnants of it, and near the bottom of the trench, uh, Schumacher found what he called the, the northern castle and the middle castle and the southern castle, the Nordburg, the Sudburg, and in some of these he found tombs including one where he's got about six bodies with gold and silver objects and all of that, promptly sends all everything up to the sultan in Istanbul because this was Ottoman territory at that time, and they are now lost. They're completely gone. There was also this. This is a reproduction, but this is a probably the most famous object that's come out of Megiddo. It's a seal, and it says the um, Shema, the servant of Jeroboam. We don't know which Jeroboam. It's either the first or the second, but it's in the first couple of centuries of the first millennium, so it's Israelite. Uh, he found this, Schumacher found this in 1904, promptly sent it to Istanbul, and it's gone. Now, I'm actually on the trail of this. 
Uh, I have been able to trace it with the help of a friend who works in Istanbul, and we've traced it to Beirut so far, and they're saying we're about to send it to Constantinople, to Istanbul, uh, but we haven't yet found it having arrived there. And in fact, Schumacher at one point in his journal muses, I wonder if this will actually make it or if it will be stolen en route. And I think it may have been stolen en route. And in terms of what it was worth in today's market, even at a dollar amount, it's worth probably at least $350,000. But of course, there's no value you can put on this. So this is also missing. I guess moral of the story is don't send stuff to the Sultan if you want it <laughs> to survive. Now, um, Schumacher also missed stuff. Again, if you were at the, the lunchtime lecture, you remember my story about George Smith who went looking for the missing piece of the Gilgamesh. Same sort of thing here where um, when Smith went, he looked in the back dirt pile, right? Well, in this particular case, what happened was that Schumacher found this piece. It's not very big. It's about six inches tall, but his workmen missed it and they threw it out on, on the side of the trench, a temporary back dirt pile. And here, this is the actual piece. This is a drawing of it. And this, kind of blurry, is a 10-foot tall inscription from which it comes. It is that little piece right up there. But it just so happens, and you guys can read Egyptian as easily as I can, right? So you can see that it actually, it is the cartouche of the pharaoh Sheshonk. He's the founder of the 22nd dynasty. He rules about 945 to 925 BCE, so he overlaps with the period of King Solomon. Now, we know in the Bible that a guy named Shishak comes up just after Solomon dies and lays siege to Jerusalem and the other cities <clears throat> as the, the kingdom splits into two. And it is thought by many that Shishak and Sheshonk are the same guy, though scholars argue about it still. I do think that they are the same guy, and so if this Sheshonk is biblical Shishak, this is the type of an inscription that the Egyptians set up at a site after they capture it and then inhabit it. They don't destroy it. So this should be able to tell us the level which Sheshonk captured, except for the fact that Schumacher missed it and threw it out. So we don't know what level it comes from, plain and simple. Chicago, when they came in 1925, here are the Chicago excavators, they came in 1925, and on the first day of the excavation, or the second day, they found that piece of rock because they were building their dig house and they were picking up the stones that Schumacher had thrown out from all the stuff he had destroyed when he had dug. And one of the workmen, they had Egyptian workmen, one of the workmen said, hey, there's Egyptian hieroglyphics on here. And when they read it, they said, oh my gosh, that's Sheshon. So they were able to find the piece, thank God, but they were not able to figure out where it comes from. So this is an enduring mystery as well. So what we've got here, these are the Chicago leaders. They were at Megiddo from 1925 to 1939. It only stopped because of World War II. The guy on the left is James Henry Breasted, who founded the Oriental Institute and was the overall director. And then these guys are all the field, successive field directors that ran the project. So Clarence Fisher was in charge first. He was taken over by this guy who has uh, a great name. I wouldn't want that name now. His name is PLO Guy. Uh, back in the 1920s, it didn't matter, but now I'm not sure I'd want to be called that. 
right? It actually stands for Philip Longstaff Ormond Guy, something like that, but PLO Guy. And then uh, Gordon Loud was in charge at the end. So these are the three successive field directors. And you can see that back then they did not dress like Indiana Jones. They dug in jacket and tie, which is, of course, how proper gentlemen dig. Um, they also, the whole, the families, were, they were living there 24-7 for most of the year. They were there for at least nine months each year, so their families were there as well, right? So we've got some of the wives. And then these are the Egyptian workmen, the Gufties, that they had in charge of the uh, various areas. And then they too, just like Schumacher, hired the locals as well, the local kids in particular, to carry the dirt away. <clears throat> and they also built, remember I mentioned the malaria, they built the dig house in part to protect them from this malaria. There's the Jezreel Valley in the back. This was built with Rockefeller money. In fact, Rockefeller underwrote the whole expedition. And so right next to it here, you can't see it yet because they haven't built it at this time, but they put in a tennis court. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but after a long, hot day of digging, I really want to play tennis. And then when I realized that they're actually there in November and December and they're not digging in those months, this then makes sense. So, and in fact, I just um, on uh, Thursday read a letter that Breasted's son wrote in which he says, I'm giving you more money to continue fixing up the house. Make sure that this tennis court is built. And the letter is 1930. And so he says, even though we're hard hit by the depression, this tennis court is not, well, how did he phrase it? He said, it is necessary to build it, which I think is kind of interesting, the way that they put uh, the emphasis on it. Okay, so um, the next guy that came is Yigal Yudin, the famous Israeli archaeologist. And he dug there in the 60s and the 70s. He used it as a training ground for his graduate students at Hebrew University. Uh, he didn't publish much but it was just published um, a couple months ago by um, Annabelle Zarzecki-Peleg, and she has finally published what he uh, excavated, so now we have that as well. So this is a picture from 1960 with Yadin there, and there's a very young David Yushishkin, who then was the co-director of our set of excavations that started in 94. So here's Yadin from the 60s, and then here is us, Starting uh, in 94, there's David Yushishkin, there's Norma Franklin, who I've mentioned that will probably give you the tour, and there is Israel Finkelstein, uh, the other co-director. So these guys and Baruch Halpern from Penn State started out as a triumvirate in 1994. Then Baruch uh, dropped out in about 2004 when Penn State became um, afraid of what was going on, and the lawyers told them to get out before somebody got hurt. So uh, B and Penn State dropped out, and I took over, and GW, and I worked my way up from associate director on upwards. So this is me in the field a couple years ago. That is not my pith helmet, but <laughs> sorry, it's not. So here's the areas that we've been excavating since 94, um, giving them all uh, letter names like Chicago did, uh, Q and K and all that. So let me walk you through a couple of the areas and show you some of the things that we've found, uh, starting with area H, which is right next to one of the palaces. And you can see 
In fact, here this is a photograph that Chicago took from their balloon. They were probably the first dig in the world to use aerial photographs. And we're looking here at Neo-Assyrian palaces that were built at the site when they took over. They built um, stratum number three, the third stratum at the site. And these palaces look like they're from Mesopotamia, picked up by helicopter and just dropped here. Because after 732, Megiddo became one of the capitals of the Neo-Assyrian province. And in fact, they called it Magidu. And we even have the name of one of the governors that ruled here. So Area H has Neo-Assyrian levels. Uh, and one of the first things that we did was to clean it off. You see us cleaning off what Chicago had excavated. And then we put a step trench down and went down, 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 down next to that area. And we went all the way down. Uh, they're down in the Middle Bronze Age at this point. And you can see this is the pottery from just one of the seasons. They employ at Tel Aviv University a conservation lab that works all year round. They have something like 10 digs going at any one time. So uh, if anybody is very interested in jigsaw puzzles and wants to help put ancient pottery back, they can always use help. The problem is you don't actually know how many jigsaw puzzles you're trying to put back together at once, and you don't have the pictures on the cover of the box at all to help you out. <laughs> Apart from that, it's fine. All right. So, and again, you can see just how many. And this is just from one year, but you can see what it eventually ends up looking like. Very satisfying to have a couple hundred shirts and then wind up with one large jar. And in fact, this is what they come up with, right? All of these are restored from the pieces that you see. So we're here in the um, Iron Age and moving back into the Late Bronze Age. And in fact, right here, this stone wall. And then right in there, they found this made out of iron. It's from the first millennium uh, BCE. Anybody have any idea what that is? No. It, it's actually the pivot for a door socket. And you would put the hinge of the door in there so it can swing. Yeah, it's an iron door socket. Yeah. Now, one thing that was kind of interesting, um, almost an accident, they found back in about 2010, we found a jar, a little jar that was full of earth. So we simply sent it back to the conservation unit to excavate very carefully and to see if they could do organic residue analysis to see what was in the jar, <laughs> perfume or oil or something like that. But they were backed up in that conservation lab. You can see why with all that pottery. So it sat on a shelf for about a year. And then the, con the conservator got to it and started to remove the earth and out from the jar, and there's the jar right there, out of the jar started pouring all these gold objects, gold earrings and rings and this. And so from what I understand, she picked up the phone and called Finkelstein and said, I know you wanted the dirt and you wanted to know um, organic residue to find out what kind of liquid was in here. So should I just throw away this gold and the silver that's coming out? <laughs> He's like, I'll be right down. 
And it turns out that what we've got is a hoard that was left by somebody uh, in like the 11th or 10th century, somewhere in that region, uh, with eight earrings and a couple of other rings and some bits of silver. Uh, they buried them for whatever reason and then never came back. So we're not quite sure why, but they're absolutely gorgeous, right? You can see the golden rings right there. So this was a surprise find that they announced. You can see it in all the new newspapers from about 2012 or so, right? And along with it, along with all the earrings and everything, uh, a couple of hundred or even a thousand beads, probably from a necklace at, at some point that's all come apart. So lots and lots of things. So the, this is the, the wonderful thing about archaeology is you never know what you're going to find, right? And so you come up with these surprises. So that's just a, a short uh, preview, and this is what I'll be doing for some of the areas of H. If we move over to Area K, uh, Mario Martin, uh, he's one of the two that took my place. When I retired as co-director, uh, I was very gratified to learn that they had to replace me with two people, not just one person, which is good. And Mario is one of them. He's an amazing guy. Here is the Area K crew at one point. And this, uh, they, we started again in um, Iron Age and Neo-Assyrian levels and have been working our way down. We're back in the Middle Bronze in this region as well. And each of the levels have um, a different configuration of buildings and walls and everything. You can see as we go down here. Uh, and they even, we found a couple years ago, the mud brick protective wall that ran around this in the Middle Bronze Age. It's actually what gives the tell its shape. It's got the round shape. Those are always built in the Canaanite period, around about the 17th century BCE or so, and here actually excavating. I can tell you for a fact, excavating mud brick is very, very difficult because you send in a volunteer and they're like, what should I do? And they're like, well, take away the dirt that's not the mud brick part, and then leave the dirt that is the mud brick part. And they're like, I'm supposed to tell dirt from dirt? And you're like, yes, it's actually quite easy. No, actually it's not, it's quite difficult. But once you can see them there, there they come up, and then once you can see the individual bricks, it's actually quite easy. <clears throat> and then the whole pottery comes up along with it as well. We even got um, a nice little figurine or plaque, bronze bowls, all of these things are coming up in Area K, and even a little bit of gold. Here's the pendant that we found from uh, the Bronze Age. Now, one of the mysteries of this period, and one of the things that uh, I've had uh, a lot of fun dealing with, is one of our levels, you can see how there's a slightly different color there, right? And especially if you get up close, you see how this is different from here. That bottom part, that's ash. That's fire, that's burning. This particular city was destroyed. Everything above it is you know, just your regular dirt, but this part, everything's been burnt, and you can actually see the broken pottery in it. So the question is, what actually, what caused this destruction, right? And I talked last night about how even when a city is destroyed, you're not always sure if it's by humans or by an earthquake, right? So in this particular case, we had a, a big discussion uh, as to what actually happened. Uh, we even found human uh, bones in there. Uh, a, a woman and six or seven children had died in this building, and we found bits and pieces of them as well. And then when we put things together, and you can see just how shattered these things were, they all went together very nicely into whole vessels. And in fact, 
there were a lot of them because this house had been destroyed and everything was still in it. So Iran Arieh, who's now a curator at the Israel Museum, uh, wrote something on all of these jars after we put them back together. Uh, and a number of people were able to what they call fine grid the area. We usually dig in five meters by five meters, so like 15 feet by 15 feet. Fine gridding is when you subdivide that into little squares of one meter by one meter, so three feet by three feet. If you do that and you keep track of what comes from where, you can actually figure out what was happening in the house. So this is the result of fine gridding, and they were able then to say, well, in this room, it's a storeroom. In this room, this is probably the living room. Here's the kitchen, and by the way, that's where most of the bodies were found, was in the kitchen, and so we're now able to recreate what was happening in this house. Now, the house dates to the 10th century BC, give or take, so somewhere in the 900s BCE, and this actually fits with Chicago's level 6A, where they found the same sort of thing. They found lots of destruction all across the entire site, and skeletons of people that had been caught in some of the destructions. So these are pictures from Chicago showing pretty much the same thing that we found, which is rather interesting. But then we've got the big question of who did this or what did this? So some people have said that this is when King David captured the site. Others said, well, this is the level when Sheshach came through, when Shishak captured it. Uh, and still others said other people did it, like maybe Israelites, but not David. Well, if we go down to Egypt and look, all right, so there's our Sheshonk fragment. This is the inscription that uh, Sheshonk says he conquered, and we can call him Shishak if we want to. And one of the cities, and again, you can read it as well as I can, it actually says that he conquered Megiddo. So this is actually proof that in this case, he's not exaggerating. He really did conquer Megiddo because we found this at the site. So is this the level that he conquered? Well, maybe. So we're left with the question of, is it David? Could it be the Sea Peoples? Do we have the Philistines here? Could it be Sheshonk or Shishak, or could it be the Israelites? And that's what everybody was arguing about from about 1998 onward when we first started finding this. And then I looked at this and being a California boy and growing up with earthquakes, I took one look at this wall and said, it's not any of the above, this is an earthquake. And they said, well, how do you know? And I said, well, because I've lived through earthquakes and all that, but besides which, look at that wall, look at the way it's tilted, look at the way it weaves, and I said, correct me if I'm wrong, but are there any weapons found with any of the bodies? Are there any arrowheads, any spears, any sort? They said, no, I said, bingo, earthquake. And they said, no, 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 no. But I, I thought, I thought, so when David Yushishkin retired and they put together a feshrift, a celebratory volume for him, I said to Israel Finkelstein, can I write about the fact that I think it's an earthquake, even though he disagrees with me in his celebratory feshrift? And Finkelstein said, if you can't put that in somebody's volume, where can you put it? So I wrote an article on this, and what I did was every day David would come up and he'd say, you know, I still don't agree. This is before I published it. He said, I still disagree with you about being an earthquake. And I'm like, why do you disagree? And he would tell me, and as soon as he left, I would whip out a notepad and write down what he had said. Uh, and so when I published the article, I was actually able 
to contradict all of his possible arguments I had before he did. So when the article comes out, he says to me, I still disagree with you, but I can't figure out how to argue with it. <laughs> You've already countered all my arguments. And I thought, yes. So anyway, and I had a great title. It's like Shake, Rattle, and Roll, or Let the Good Times Roll, or something like that. I had a great title for it. Anyway, so I think that this is destroyed by an earthquake in the 10th century, which means, though, that we're still looking for David and Solomon and anything else like that. So. Speaking of that, moving to Area L, and I don't want to run out of time here, but Area L was where I was digging for, oh boy, 1998 to about 2007. I was one of the area supervisors in here. This has stables that are attributed to Solomon, and so we come back to this question of are they Solomons and are they stables? So. Um, we started digging here. Chicago had thought because of the link to the Hebrew Bible, in First Kings it talks about Solomon having chariots and horsemen, and then it also says that he built things at Hatsor and Megiddo and Gezer. So there's actually a telegram that the Chicago excavator sent back to Breasted in Chicago that said, have found Solomon's stables. Stop. Congratulations. And that made the New York Times and everything back in the, in the late 20s. So are they actually stables? I think they are. Uh, but when do they date? Are they Solomons? They're not. They're later. The radiocarbon and the pottery uh, indicates that they're uh, either Ahab, Omri, or even later, maybe one of the Jeroboams. But this is what we were excavating when we were there. And you can see the standing stones and the mangers where the horses would have eaten from. And uh, these pictures, for me, are what uh, really solidified it. The central aisle is of plaster. And then on either side here, and then you can't really see it here because we still have our bulk, but either side have small paving stones. The horses would have been on the sides, and this is the area where you would have trundled your wheelbarrows with the grain and the water and all that uh, to feed them. So you can actually see here, this overall is one of the stables with the central aisle and then one side aisle and then another one over here. And there are actually five of these tripartite sections all in a row making up um, a stable that would have held between 120 and 240 horses. The thing is there's only um, entrances slash exits on one side. So first horse in is going to be the last horse out. Not a good idea if it catches on fire. But so we drew a stone-by-stone stone plan. We kind of reconstructed what we might have thought it looked like. And you can see there the entrance and then no exit out there. So you got to come back on in. Building parallels. There are other buildings like this found at Hatsor and Beersheba. And in fact, there's been a raging argument for the last 70 or 80 years as to what these actually are. Some people suggest they're not stables. They might be a marketplace, or they might be barracks for soldiers, or they might be you name it. And in fact, at some of the other sites, they might have served that purpose. I think ours at Megiddo were stables originally. That doesn't mean they weren't repurposed. Like now, you know, some of the uh, big superstores that are going out of business are being repurposed. It may be something like this as well. But we had the present Lord Allenby there. He's the great grand nephew of the original Lord Allenby from World War I. And he was in the British cavalry for 30 years. 
We also had Deborah Cantrell working with us. She was um, a lawyer who decided to go into archaeology and got her PhD. She also raises Tennessee walking horses for fun. Uh, and in fact, um, I have it on good authority, she single-handedly sponsored the Israeli equestrian team at the Olympics for a couple of years. So she knows horses. So between her and Allenby, they took a look at things like this and they said, yes, these are definitely stables, in part because of this. You've got a shadow here and a shadow down here, right? The one down bottom is where the horse would have been pawing while waiting for food. And even though it's stone, it's soft stone, so they would have taken some out. The shadow up top, we have any horse people in here? This, you know, cribbing? Cribbing is when they grab on and Right, I'm told that it's a real cheap and easy way to get high. I'm not a horse, so I've never tried it, but um, they said that only one thing would make that mark, and that is cribbing. So they said, for sure, you've got horses here. And I said, but it's small. They said, that's fine. The horses back then would have been about two-thirds the size of our horses today. So they said, no problem with these being stables. But still, we wanted to make sure. So here's Baruch Halpern and Arlene Rosen. And they took about 60 soil samples and analyzed the content because if there were horses here, they would have been going to the bathroom, of course. And if so, there should be uh, potassium and barium in the soil, which are byproducts of the, uh, the poop, shall we say, and the urine. And sure enough, the samples came back high for both potassium and barium. And we thought, yay! And then the control samples from elsewhere on the mound also came back high <laughs> for potassium and barium. So rather than being able to say these are stables, all we can say is that people and animals have been going to the bathroom on top of Megiddo for a very long time. This doesn't really help. On the other hand, right underneath this level, we found this, which is really kind of cute. It, some people think it looks like a horse's head. Others look like it looks like a flying pig. Um, we just don't know. But uh, again, I don't know um, if this means it's a stable. We never did find any bones or teeth, and this was bothering us until we talked to somebody who raises horses, and they said, well, that makes sense. Why would you leave a dead horse in the stables? You're going to drag them off and throw them off the mound to look for them down in the valley. But... So the fact that there's no horse bones, they said, isn't a problem. Okay, now, uh, in Q, wrapping up here. Uh, in Q, where I was excavating for a while, Chicago had dug there 1925 and 1926 and then stopped. They had left it alone. So when we came back in 2008, we were able to use their pictures and drawings. This is from Chicago's publication, 1926. And you can see the nice square and rectangular rooms, right? That, and we thought we were going to find this. Some round uh, things as well. When we started cutting down the weeds that have been growing for 80 years, and we started digging, we found those pits and other ones that we didn't expect. In fact, you can see this ring of rocks here. There's another ring of rocks there. Those are not on the plan. They're not what Chicago found, and we were so confused by this. So we started excavating them right away because they were right on top. And it turned out that in them and around them, we started finding live bullets and cartridge cases from spent bullets. And we thought, okay, somebody was up here doing weekend shooting or hunting, and then we started finding more and more and more and more. And so, you know, within, 
Time is getting short, I know. When we started finding these, I basically said, wait, halt, 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 don't throw them away. I think these are archaeological artifacts. And they're like, what do you mean? They're bullets, how can they be? I said, just go with me on this, collect them. Let's see where we've got. So we started collecting them. We got 110 back in uh, uh, 2008. We got another 101 in 2010. We found more in 2012 and more in 2014. So this is what they look like right here as they came out of the ground. This is what they look like cleaned up, and this is the back of them with what are called head stamps. I had a student, Anthony Sutter, who um, was working actually for the Department of Justice here in California during the summers. Uh, he's from, I think, Ripon up north. And so he said, you know, let me take a look at these. Let me clean them off. So I gave him the first batch. Uh, and we got them back to California. And then I took the second batch, and both of us cleaned them off and looked at the head stamps. And lo and behold, not a single one was from after 1948. You might be able to see where I'm going with this. Right. So it turned out that when I started looking at all of these, all of these bullet casings could only have been shot from three different machine guns. And they were all definitely from 1948 war. The problem was, which one had they fired? And I didn't know anybody who had a German MG-34 or an MG-42 or a Czech ZB-37. These are not things you have in your everyday collection, right? So I didn't know how to decide which we had there. I went back to GW. And at that time, I was the chair of the department, and so we always had an annual August retreat where all the chairs of the departments got together, and the dean told us what we were going to do for that year, et cetera, et cetera. So I was talking to Walter Rowe, who at the time was in charge of our forensics department, and I was telling him about these bullet casings that we had found and that I was trying to identify. And he said, oh, we've got a, a, a woman who adjuncts for us. She works um, for the ATF and she can maybe help you out here. So I called her up and she put me in touch with another guy and I went out to a rather secret location in Virginia where uh, ATF basically has every firearm known to humans. Right? When I called him up, I said, I'm looking for this, these two uh, MG German. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, you want the 42, the 34? I said, well, I'm looking for a Czech one. He says, oh, you want like the ZB-37? I'm like, yeah. He said, it was like the Staples ad. He says, yeah, we got those. I'm like, oh, my God. So I went out there, and he said to me, um, you want to fire them? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, kidding, you can't touch them. But I'll do it. And it turned out, he says, you know, I was an archaeology major as an undergrad. And I'm like, yeah, where, are you? where were you? And he says, Montclair State. And I said, do you know Barbara Kling? And he's like, she was my advisor. I'm like, I was in grad school with Barbara. He's like, okay, we're going to get along well. All right. So we took those three machine guns and modern equivalent of the, the millimeter and shot them and then went back to the original woman and she put them in one of those ballistic machines where you've got them side by side. And we compared them to each of them, and the one that matched was the Czechoslovakian machine gun. So this is one of the ones that we found, and that is one of the ones that we just fired. And you can see there, and not just them, all the other little scrapings and markings all fit as well. And then when I did the research, it turns out that ZB-37 machine guns and millions of rounds of ammunition, Benny Morris tells us, were sent from Czechoslovakia. And David Ben-Gurion, in fact, is quoted by saying that these saved the state. So what we actually did, without even meaning to, 
was battlefield archaeology. We thought we were digging Neo-Assyrian stuff from the 8th century BCE, and in fact, we were digging 1948. So what it turned out, remember the round circles I talked about? Somebody had moved the rocks from those square and rectangular rooms that Chicago had excavated and made firing pits for them and placed a machine gunner in each one of them. And that's why we had found this. And you can see we're on the edge here. Over here, that white complex in the trees, that is now the Megiddo prison where high-profile prisoners are kept. But in 1948, that was the British police station. And that was what the Israelis were trying to capture in 1948 when they fought a battle at Megiddo. The um, tree and the sword was the only uh, report that we had in Hebrew up until what we just did. And it turns out that this is about 1,200 meters away. The machine guns have a, um, a distance of 1,500 meters. So we now know that the Israelis were advancing across the field, and our guys up at Megiddo were firing over their heads at the police station as covering fire. So Anthony and I published this after he finished his honors thesis, and we put it in the Journal of Military History, calling it Battlefield Archaeology at Armageddon, Cartridge Cases and the 1948 Battle at Megiddo. The moral of the story is, when you're excavating, don't throw anything away, because you never know when it might be of interest. And now, in fact, I'm getting emails from other people, like Aaron Mayer at Safi, and they are all saying, oh, we've got those too. We were like, they're important? Like, yeah, you probably had a battle fought there in 1948. So now they're all keeping them, and we may see other things as well. And with that, I thank you. I am out of time, I know, but thank you very much. So I know that was a quick run through, but that gives you an idea of what we've been finding over the 20 years. And the excavations are continuing. So if you want to get over there and tour it, uh, you'll be able to see what's going on. Yes? The bodies that you recovered. The bodies that we recovered, yes? From, from the earlier dig that you were surmising may have been earthquake versus battle. Um, was it uncommon to just leave bodies fallen in battle? where they fell without cleaning them up or burying them? Yes, it's very uncommon. So the bodies found in basically stratum 6A, where I think there's an earthquake, um, very uncommon, except that it seems that across the whole level, and the Chicago people wrote about this, they were wondering the same thing. Because no, it's not common to leave the bodies out. You usually take them and you bury them somewhere. And what it seems is that some of the survivors came back because the bodies, even though they're lying right where they are, some of them are covered with broken pieces of pottery. So it looks like they made some attempt at burial. But for the most part, it looks like they just covered over the whole thing and built the next level. Right? And in fact, that may be Israelite. So it's very uncommon to find bodies still there. But wouldn't that augur with your idea that it was earthquake and yeah. natural disaster rather than... Yeah, for me, I think that, that is pretty much what cemented it for me. If you've got bodies that aren't retrievable because they're covered by fallen walls, yeah. So for me, this is not a battle. This is Mother Nature. Yeah. There's been a lot of scientific advances presently in the last, say, 10 or 15 years versus what they had... 70, 80 years ago right. in microarchaeology, um, pollen analysis, um, carbon dating, etc. Right. How has that changed your thoughts on, on the history and prehistory of, of this? Right, okay, so the advances in the sciences have allowed us to do things we couldn't do before. 
So for instance, Israel Finkelstein got a huge uh, European grant, um, like multi-million euros or something like that, back in about 2008. And he was able to do what he called the Life Sciences uh, Project. And there are a couple of different tracks, but just as you mentioned, there's a, a radiocarbon track. There is actually something where uh, they come on in in October after our digging season is over in June and July, and they would come in and look at what was on the floors with the accumulation of the dust to figure out what was going on there. So uh, basically, it has revolutionized what we're able to do, not in terms of the huge picture, like in terms of you know Egyptian occupation and King David and Israelites, but in terms of what life was like for the people in those periods. We're now able to, for sure, say what they were eating and what they were drinking and um, what life was like, if there's any textiles still left there. So it is revolutionizing our knowledge of, say, daily life. Right? The big picture we already had, but the little picture, that's where the improvements are coming. It's, this is a great time to be an archeologist right now. But it's also a great time to be somebody who's interested in archeology, span but is a chemist, a physicist, a geologist, anything like that, because we are bringing them in to do these studies. So yeah, it has revolutionized it in that way. Thank you. Yeah. Could you, um, spatially, what size are we talking about? We're seeing these pictures and, I, and you know, these areas and then photographs of y'all standing there. I, I'm, I don't have a clue as to Right, what you don't have a clue as to how big it is. Right, and that's a very good question. It's not that big. Um, you can walk across the top of the mound in 10 minutes. I would say. We're talking about, they usually put it in terms of hectares, which then you have to make it acres. But basically, if we put it into miles, it's like, gosh, I don't know, a quarter mile across at the top. The palaces are not very big. No, they're not that big. These are yeah, the, the Palace 6000 at one point that I was digging, you know, I could, well, let's just say uh, Usain Bolt could run across it <laughs> faster than he could run the 100 meters. Right, so these are not huge. And then the corollary to how big this is is how many people were there, which is what we're always interested in as well. And then you've got the question of how much cubic space does a person need but so the short answer there is there's probably a couple hundred to a couple thousand people living here at any one time, but not more than that. I'd be really surprised if there were more than five or 10,000 people here at any one time. More likely it's in just a couple of hundreds. So when they built the house, the, the house and the tennis courts that were built, I'm sorry, I kind of missed, that was built for the people who are living there. That's built for the people that were digging in the 1920s and 30s. Those are the Chicago people. Isn't there a concern building on top of that area you're going to build on top of something that may be very precious and yes, unable to recover at that point? Yes, absolutely a good question. And in fact, so if you're building right there, aren't you building on top of ancient remains? At the beginning, they built their initial things off the mound, but that was where they all got eaten by the mosquitoes and got the malaria because they built it by Ancubis Spring, which was not a good idea. So then they moved it up onto the lower terrace of the mound. So yes, almost for sure there's stuff underneath it, but can't get at it now. And in the meantime, that's now the restaurant gift area museum. <laughs> And so there's now an entire paved parking lot there as well. So yeah, so the lower part of the mound we're probably not, never going to get to in that area. Or but the, they'll excavate the parking lot and they wonder what the hell that was. Exactly, exactly. But you know, even with a hundred years of excavation there, we've probably only got we've probably only excavated ten percent, twenty percent of the mound. So there's a lot left here. Yeah. You said there's like six or seven <coughs> levels. We got about twenty different cities. Oh, cities. 
Yeah, we're able to see all the top, but the stratigraphy, as we call it, where you've got the different levels, the stratigraphy can be incredibly complicated because it's not always a clean break. And sometimes somebody from one level will dig down into the next level to make a garbage pit or something like that. So that's where like David Yushishkin came in. He was a master uh, stratigrapher. He could take a look at the side section and go, oh, you've got X, Y, and Z here. But it can be, it can be tough. So in fact, the Chicago people, when they excavated, they called one level level four. Uh, and they split it into 4A and 4B, and then they had level five, and they had A and B. When they published their results, the other archaeologists, like Albright and Bright, looked and said, you guys messed up. You know, your levels are not like that. Actually, there's a level called um, 5B, 4A. And so you messed up. These, this isn't two halves of four and two halves of five. It's a bit of four, a bit of five, and then another one that's right in the middle. So they messed up, which is kind of interesting. So that's how tough, because they were good, and that's how tough the stratigraphy can be. All right? yeah. So some people have been there recently. Mark Berman was there on a bike ride. So I'm interested to know what he actually saw, but I find it very hard as a layperson to go to a site like that and actually understand what the heck's there. Yeah. So when we go, yeah. how are we going to understand? And I, I know in Caesarea now they have 3D models and a great visual room where they show you the layers of what was going on and really made they a difference. Do, do they do yeah. that here? And what, what, when we go, what, what should we go see? Well, they do it and they don't do it. If you're down in the museum, they have a nice film and they've got a 3D model that you can push the buttons and things go up and come down, right? On the site itself, um, you're a bit more at the mercy, but at one point, uh, Joelle, uh, Israel Finkelstein's wife, put together a bunch of very beautiful signs with, in, in Hebrew and in English describing what you're looking at. So one of the things you want to do is make sure you stop at each of those areas and read what's on the signs because they are accurate. Beyond that, though, what you're looking at can be very difficult to see. And it is compounded by what Chicago did. When Chicago started, they were doing basically total archaeology, horizontal. They exposed the top level. They drew it, they photographed it, and then they removed it and threw it out. And then stratum number two, they exposed the whole thing, horizontal archaeology. They drew it, they photographed it, and then they removed it and threw it out. Same thing with three, so or most of it, because then they started running out of money. And so what they did is they switched to vertical archaeology in one part of the mound, and that they took all the way to bedrock, which is why we know that there are 20 cities there, because Chicago went all the way down. What it means, though, is when you go to visit and you're walking around the top, you are not seeing stratum 1 or stratum 2. You're seeing a mixture of stratum 3 and stratum 4, and you can't always tell which is which. Even I, going around, I'm like, I don't know. I, that, that could be three, that could be four. When you get to the Neo-Assyrian palaces, I'm like, okay, that's stratum three. And when you get over to ours, the stable and, uh, and the, the palace over in the north, I'm like, okay, we're into four and almost into five there. But it can be confusing, which is why you want a good guide. Right. So we will go to the stable, take a picture of our group there and send it to you. Absolutely. So two, two other related questions. Yeah. Where is all the pottery from there? Can we see it on the side or is that in the Israel Museum? Um, no, most of the pottery is at Tel Aviv, in the conservation area and the storerooms. So we there can't is, see that. Well, if you get a behind-the-scenes tour, you could, 
right? Like if you write to somebody and ask nicely, you might be able to, but it'll be when you're in Tel Aviv. There is a sample that's in the Israel Museum up in Jerusalem, but you know that's been there for, for donkey's years. Things may be changing now, though. There are... Um, a couple of new curators at the Israel Museum, Aran Arieh, who was at Megiddo with us for years, is now a curator there. Um, also, Shirley Bendor Evian's just been hired as their Egyptian curator, and Narit Goshen is a Bronze Age curator. So the displays in the Israel Museum now may now be changing because of the basically the new blood there. So we may get more Megiddo stuff there in, in the My future. My last question. Is uh, this is this is the place of the final war, isn't it? This is indeed. So, you, yes. Why is this the place of the final war? Well, this is a great, great, great question, and I'm glad you asked that. Yes. Yeah, so this is, if you look in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, this is, and I'll just, it's Revelation 16, 16, to be perfectly clear. It says that they will gather in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So they're actually going to gather here, whether they're going to fight the the battle not quite clear. And in fact, Armageddon, most people think it's the final battle between good and evil. It's not. It's the penultimate battle. It's the second to last. The final one is going to be fought down near Jerusalem after a thousand years. And that's what the New Testament says also. So this penultimate battle is actually going to be between the forces of good and the forces of evil. But the humans are on the, the bad side, the losing side. So it's kind of interesting if you look at it. The question of why John, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation, and he's not the Apostle John, he's another guy named John, he was actually in exile on the island of Patmos in the reign of Domitian, the Roman emperor, in 80 CE. And he had this vision at night in the, in the cave there. And the whole thing is, it's either like an LSD-inspired dream or, or it's coded stuff because Babylon that's mentioned is probably actually Rome and this and that. But for our purposes, what's important is the same question I asked myself that you've just asked. Why did John put the battle here at Megiddo? He could have put it anywhere. Rome, Athens, Jerusalem, and all that. So it's not in Jerusalem because he saves that for the final battle. Out of everything else, um, the Jezreel Valley and Megiddo, it would have been the most blood-soaked area that he knew about. Even in his day, writing in the first century CE, you already had all the biblical battles that he would have known about, right? Saul and Jonathan die in this region. Deborah uh, fights here and so on. So I think that John picked this place as the battle because he knew so many had been fought there. But I also think there's another piece to the puzzle. Uh, remember, he's writing in the New Testament. He's, he's Roman. Um, if he looks back in history, I mentioned briefly at the beginning that one of the battles fought here was Josiah in 609, and Josiah dies here. Now, Josiah is the last independent king uh, that was directly descended from David. Now, if you look in the book of Matthew, I think it is, and you see the genealogy of Christ, it goes down from David through Josiah and then on down into the first millennium. So my thinking, if I can get into the head of John, which is of course dangerous, but um, Jezreel Valley is the bloodiest place he knows. Within the Jezreel Valley, he knows that Josiah was killed there. And so if the figure from the white horse coming down from the heavens is going to win the battle and he is a descendant of Josiah, 
then he gets revenge for his ancestor's death at the same time as winning against evil. So I actually think that's why Megiddo was picked. Now, of course, I could be completely wrong, but it, it makes sense to me, because otherwise I'm like, why Megiddo? But he did pick um, Megiddo as Armageddon. So long answer to your question, but it is an excellent one, and I think that is why we've got the battle fought here. But it, most people, 90% of the people, don't think the battle's been fought. There are certain... Uh, groups that do think the battle was already fought, and it was back in like 1099 that it was already, and we're in the post-millennial age now. Personally, me, I don't think it's happened yet, so I'm waiting. But, Let's do uh, two more questions. Yeah. How does the team get authority to do the dig? Is it a monopoly? Why did you go? You didn't give up. Who stopped? Right, okay, so how do you get a permit to dig at a site and do you have a monopoly while you have it? It can actually be quite a political process. You put in an application and then it gets voted on by the Archaeological Council. Once you've got the permit, and it did take about, you know, like a decade of squabbling over who was going to get Megiddo before Finkelstein and Yushishkin got it, um, you then are able to hold on to it as long as you continue to publish and you can show that you have money each year and that you're actively moving forward. And in the time that you're not there, nobody else can dig. So our site at Cobri, we have the permit. We've had it since 2005, and nobody can dig there when we're not there. Now, with Megiddo, it's also a national park. So it is protected when they're not there, which is very nice. At Cobri, way up north where we are, we're not a national park, but we are lucky enough that our site is covered over with avocado groves. And so the kibbutz, Kibbutz Kavri, has an electronic gate system that is protecting them. And at one point we said, you know, we're really glad you guys have this gate system to protect our site. And they said, we're not protecting the site. Those avocados, it's a multi-million dollar crop. <laughs> so we're like, okay, fine. Right, so you have to apply. Uh, and now they're cracking down, like many countries are as well, for the digs that are not publishing. They're not going to get their permit renewed until they've published. All right, so this is one way to, to keep on it. But um, So the Megiddo Consortium has this, this permit. Why did Yadin stop? Yadin stopped mostly because he moved on and did other things. And he was really just using it as a training ground for his graduate students and to answer a couple of specific questions that he wanted to do. And then he moved on. Yeah, he dug, you know, everywhere, right? Masada, um, hot sword, you name it, he was Let's there. Two last questions. Okay. Here yes. you, mentioned, you mentioned that the first few strata were disassembled and Removed. discarded. Yes. Um, if you continue with the, uh, with the uh, same process, eventually you'll excavate everything. You'll be down to bedrock and there won't be nothing left. Exactly. How's that managed? Well, that's not a good idea. Right, which is why we don't usually do horizontal excavation like they did, which, that Chicago did. And even they realized that it was not a good idea. But we talk about archaeology being the science of destruction. We're one of the only groups that destroys what we're studying. And so we're fully aware that nobody else can come back. You can't replicate what we've done because it's gone. So vertical archaeology and even partial archaeology is what we do today. Today we're mostly sampling the sites and we will leave large parts of it for the next generation or even another generation beyond that because we've got tools that they would never have anticipated 100 years ago. And I'm sure there will be tools in another century that we don't anticipate. In fact, um, I've got a book coming out in, in March on general archaeology. 
Troy and Pompeii and Megiddo and Masada and all that. And in one of my chapters on the remote sensing, I say, I'm sure there's better technology out there than we're using. So if anybody like in Silicon Valley or anywhere else knows of a machine that can detect plaster and other things through layers of soil, let me know because we need them. And in fact, that's where we get much of our advances in technology is borrowing it from other scientific disciplines. But Chicago removing everything, if they had gone all the way down to bedrock, there'd be nothing left for us to look at and that would not be good. Last question. Last question. I guess it's the opposite of, you know, taking it vertically down. Obviously, as a tell with the elevation provides a great overlook. Yes. What did it, was it all just a plane and it just built up? Or was it initially a hill that overlooked and everyone just said, oh, they got it right. Let's just keep building up. From good there. question. Good question. So, yeah, when you're picking an ancient site, you need three things. You need defense. You need water and you need food. And in this particular case, they had them all. Norma Franklin and Jennifer Piersma actually at one point tried to map the original bedrock and have shown that it was originally a hill. It would have overseen the plain. Now, as the cities grew and it went up, it got better and better and better and better. So by the time, yeah, by the time you get to like the, you know, Solomon, it would have been towering above the, the valley. But there was an original hill there, which already gave it a natural advantage. Yeah. So before we wrap it up, um, can you tell us a little bit about your current dig, Tel Cabri? Tel Cabri? Sure. Um, just a little bit about what you're finding up there, yeah. why it's interesting, and why you're there. Yeah, if we had a fourth lecture, I would give you a lecture on Cabri. But, uh, and I can, I'd love to, you're all welcome if anybody's over there next summer. Cabri is, it's a Canaanite palace from about 1700 BCE, so almost 4,000 years ago. It was discovered by accident. Uh, it's way up north by the Lebanese border. Anybody been to Rosh Hanikra, the grottos there? All right, we're right there. In fact, we stay at the Western Galilee Field School, which is just down the beach from there. When we started living there a, a couple of summers ago, I was fetching because there's no swimming pool. And they said, swimming pool? We have the Mediterranean right here, which is true. It's about 50 feet away. Um, and so Cabri is, is just inland from there. Uh, so we're about as close to the Lebanese border as you can get. It's a Canaanite palace, 1700 BCE. Uh, was discovered by accident when they were putting a water line through to bring water to Haifa and Akko and Naharia in the 60s and they went right through our palace. They went right through the plaster floor. And there were a couple of young archeologists running up and down, watching them going, no, 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 see what you can do, see what you can do. Um, one of them was uh, a kid uh, named Ami Mazar, who was there, and the other was uh, Aharon Kempinski. Kempinski came back in the 80s and opened up the excavation. And then he pulled in Wolf Dietrich Niemeyer, a German archeologist who does the Bronze Age again, because what they were finding was they found a painted plaster floor and they found fragments of painted wall plaster and the paintings were done as if they had been painted by people from Greece. Mycenaeans, Minoans, Cycladic Islanders. These are Aegean-style wall paintings and floor paintings in this Canaanite palace. There's only four such palaces that are known to have these. Uh, one's in Turkey, one's in Syria, we're in Israel, and there's one in Egypt. So that made all the news. That was from 86 to 93. And so all of us, I mean, I do international trade in antiquity, and this was extremely exciting to me. 
Well, Kempinski died suddenly in, in 94, and Niemeyer went off and did other things. So the site lay fallow for like a decade. But Asafia Sorlandau, my co-director, had been a volunteer there in 1990, and he had been part of the team that was excavating this plaster. So he had said, one day I want to come back and excavate it myself. Uh, we had been at Megiddo together in 98, and then he had gone off and dug at Ashkelon while I stayed on at Megiddo. So in 2004, on uh, a weekend, I took uh, the volunteers on a trip down to Ashkelon, and Asaf comes running up to me and says, hey, Eric, good to see you. You want to reopen Kabri with me? And I said, sure, sounds good. He says, okay, I'll talk to you about it later, and off he ran. It was a 30-second conversation that has resulted in 10 years of partnership so far. So in 2005, we went and we started excavating. We found more of these fragmentary paintings, and then in 2013, we started excavating outside the palace, or so we thought. We wanted to compare the haves to the have-nots, right? Palatial versus domestic. What did the regular people do? So we moved to an area we thought was outside the palace. Wrong. We ended up in the storerooms of the palace, and we hit one room that had 40 jars three feet high in this one 15 foot by 15 foot room. And when we analyzed them with organic residue analysis, every one of them had held wine. We had found the palatial wine cellar. Now, the jars hold the equivalent of 6,000 bottles of wine. And we actually then found grape seeds and the organic residue analysis tells us that they had flavored it with honey, and mint and juniper berries. So we actually think we might be able to recreate the wine at some point. Now in 2015, we went back and excavated next to that one room. Lo and behold, there was a second room and a third room and a fourth room. We now have 110 jars and I think we're closing in on 20,000 bottles of wine. So either this is now a distribution center or an actual small winery rather than just a wine cellar, or we had a king that threw the most amazing parties. <laughs> right, not sure. But in 2017 then, and I'm about to put the website up on, I just created it, I'm about to put it up. Um, there are, we think, four more rooms next to the four that we've done. And on the last week, everything's always found in the last week, we dug a uh, trial trench through the floor of one of the rooms, and there's another room underneath, which is all burnt and destroyed. So there may be kind of like a basement underneath, uh, or maybe even another level, and that's destroyed, which gives us the radiocarbon dating. So 2017 should be a really exciting season, and if any of you want to come and join us for a day or two or even a couple of weeks, you are more than welcome. I'll send you the information. But so far, what we have figured out is our little wine cellar, it's the oldest and largest wine cellar ever found in the ancient Near East, which is pretty neat. And if you had asked me when I declared at the age of seven that I was going to be an archaeologist, that one day I would find the oldest wine cellar, I would go, get out of here. But again, that's the beauty of archaeology. You never know what you're going to find. Thank you. Thank you.